I'm Rosie Ward, and this is Show Up as a Leader. So be prepared to laugh, shake your head a little, maybe scratch your head and go, huh, as well as have some insights and introspection as you listen to my fun-filled conversation with Howie Milstein. He is such a gem, and if one of his titles tells you anything about him, he is the CEO and provocateur for the Institute to Stop Taking Yourself So Seriously. And Howie's got such an eclectic background and decided early on in his career to question conventional thinking and seek the truth that is rooted in unbiased observation. We talk about how often we seek out things that confirm what we already believe or what we already know. And he's really fascinated with what motivates us and what makes us tick and says that if we're going to optimize culture, employee engagement, and predictable outcomes, he found he had to become deeply introspective and choose the best leadership style that nurtures innovation, passion, and growth. And when he stopped taking himself so seriously, things got better. In fact, he says much better. And so how he takes a really lighthearted approach to life and brings that into his writing and speaking style. And he's also a fabulous career coach. His new book came out last year, and I'm going to give you the PG version of the title, Don't Be an Effing Dick, Leadership for Vibrant Communities. And he really just talks about that, you know, we have this normalcy of being human. We all can show up as an FD and it gets in our way. And really, how can we recognize that, what we can do about it? And there's just so many good nuggets of wisdom and laughter in this conversation. Enjoy. So tell me what prompted you to finally write this gem, which everyone should get. It takes like an hour to read and it's actually practical. And I was laughing my ass off. You know, Rosie, I just at some point got to a point in my life where I became incredulous about bad leaders. It's like, okay, I can't take it anymore. I just have to do something, whatever it is, to get some message out there and you know, how much I hate ego and narcissism and sociopathy and psychopathy. And, you know, I probably have it all myself. I just don't recognize it. But I did definitely recognize it in other people and just saw how dang dysfunctional it was for the organizations. You cannot have conscientious capitalism with overblown ego in the room. You just, right. It just doesn't work. You know, and I've been studying the human condition for years. I've been, it's really been my passion. It's what makes people tick. You know, my, my thesis in exercise physiology was on motivational principles. It wasn't on science anymore. It's, I'm just curious about what make pe- what makes people do stuff. And um, it became a journey of emotional intelligence and a little bit of psychology and, and now neuroscience. So I just decided to, you know, try to be a voice out there of building really good, vibrant communities that are the workplace through better leaders, you know, more connected, more emotional, intelligent, you know, not all about them, no overblown ego in the room, no huge self-interest, all that. When it comes to psychopathy and sociopathy, though, there's nothing you can do. You just have to run away. So people are like, well, why would I want to get this book? One, you said, you know, you could give it to somebody. So you you could give this to someone as a not so subtle hint to tell them not to be an effing dick. But right. you're very clear about that this is a gender neutral term, right? Well, I'm of the personal belief that 
females are naturally imbued with the qualities to be really good leaders. They tend to be more empathic. They're a little more vulnerable. Generally, I think a little bit more emotional, intelligent. But if a female wants to rise in the ranks of this male-dominated culture, you know, work culture, they have to really work hard to check those natural inclinations at the door. And they can be worse in terms of being really difficult bosses to work with and for. Oh, for sure. Well, I can't tell you how many how many uh, women that I coach, and I will say like even some women surgeons who are very, very successful. Cause I know you talk about, you know, you and I both have worked in the healthcare world and they, they're like, I would be eaten alive if I didn't show up as a complete robotic, heartless bitch, I will be eaten alive and not taken seriously. And it's so sad, you know, when you think about hyper-masculine qualities and hyper-feminine qualities and that we really kind of need a blend of both to be effective, but that the, the feminine qualities of nurturance and empathy and caring and connection and warmth somehow are viewed as weak or less than I know you're, feel like they have to shut them off. You know, the thing is we're born with certain gifts and we don't have the ability or the courage to let them manifest. Right. You know, within, and, and it's just very sad. Right. And now, and I know that's when I spent 16 years in the orthopedic business world and really male dominated at that time. And the occasional yep. female surgeon holy buckets, you know, stand back, you know, I found myself volunteering very little bit of Howie's, you know, humor and imagination in the operating room in those days. (laughs) (laughs) They wouldn't be so appreciated, right? Maybe not. So one of the things I thought was really interesting. So in your book, you talk about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and then you talk about flipping the hierarchy of needs. So can you say a little bit more about how you view our hierarchy of needs as human beings? Yeah, it's not so much flipping it as just sort of reshuffling it. We have the physiologic needs. You know, there's water, air, uh, pizza for me is very high on that need. But when you look at the neuroscience and how humans are really given ways of thinking and seeing their world and perceiving their environment, it all comes from their connections to other people. So originally from your mother and then your parents and your family, but it's really the community around you that is so nurturing to the human psyche that you can have all your needs met. I mean, you could have air water. And I, and I think of the, the prisoner that is in um, isolation and you know, they're getting their food, they're getting their water, you know, maybe even a little bit of exercise, but they don't see people, they go crazy, right? We just really have this fundamental need to just be around people, which speaks to the challenges of COVID. It also speaks to the challenges of how do we look at the return to the office thing too, right? Because we love, we, we, we like virtual because there's no commute and no pants, but there's no people in the room either. And you don't get that with with Zoom. You don't have the same level of intimacy and interaction and feedback that you get when you're with a group of people. So the community thing is vital. Loneliness is a killer. I think we know that now. There's some data around that. You can probably find it because it's confirming our bias. But but if you without community, I just really don't think there's really that core connection to our planet through other people, you know, and a loss of purpose and and all that. And we talk about productivity, how you can be way more productive if other people aren't around you. Well, the workplace provides this opportunity 
in what looks like unproductive time to have this community need met. You know, it's that 30 to 40% of time that looks like it's being unproductive or you're just interacting with people and you're having a need met that you're not even readily aware of yourself. Yeah. You know, if you think like back, you know, um, you know, when Google people talk about, oh, like all of their little kitchenettes and stuff, but it was, it was fostering those accidental run-ins with people, right? That that seem like all those one-off connections, but they found that not only is it fostering human connection, but that's also where like ideas popped up because you're just having a different conversation or you're connecting with people or you're brainstorming or you're sharing ideas or you know what? You're actually listening to someone who has different views than you that isn't seeking out something that just confirms what you already think. And that that was actually a key to a lot of their growth and innovation was fostering areas and spaces for people to have those accidental run-in connections with people. Right. You know, we don't just sit there in a bubble and all of a sudden start thinking differently. The catalyst is somebody, you know, either challenging or uh, an assumption or asking you to reconsider, you know, where your thinking is coming from, where you think, oh, maybe there is another way. And that is the root of innovation. And it usually comes through collaboration with others. When you talk about you know, neuroscience and understanding what makes us tick, you said when left unchecked by conscious thinking, our brain doesn't always operate so usefully. We are driven by perceptions of fear, often based not in reality, but in evolutionary constructs that are no longer relevant, especially since the extinction of the saber-toothed tiger, the T-Rex, and the Corvair. We default to tribalism, separating ourselves from others who don't look or sound like we do, which, you know, we talk about that all the time in the work we do of busting paradigms and how often, and especially I feel like in our world that's so divisive, it, and with being separated by COVID, it's become even easier to seek out people who think like you do or be part of a, a social media group or a Facebook group that, you know, everyone's like thinking the same things and they're like minded versus, you know, uh, like Adam Grant talked about, you know, rethinking and relearning and and like, no, like poke holes in this. Right. And 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 show me other things. And I think it's so comfortable to just be around people who think like you do. And one of the things I love that you do and, you, you know, it's, it's about busting that and making people a little uncomfortable because that's the only way we grow. Well, what's the very, you know, if you have the book there, yeah, you know, instead of a dedication, what's the, what's my little opening foray? The little, the little quote in the very beginning. A comfort zone is a beautiful place, but nothing ever grows there. Right. So we have to keep, you know, staying a little bit uncomfortable. Yep. Yep. Right. And not just seeking comfort. Right. Well, one of the things you talk about in here too, how often are we running around on autopilot? Our bodies physiologically are designed that way. And so how do we create safe environments to disrupt that autopilot? Every one of us has the opportunity to show up as an FD if left unchecked. So it's like, how do we create safe spaces where people can hold up a mirror to us and tell us before we have so much collateral damage, it's going to be absolutely impossible to clean up. So this is where the emotional intelligence comes in. And by the way, emotional intelligence isn't a, a switch that flips, you know, right. it, it comes in degrees and it ebbs and flows within all of us. And there's no such thing as being perfectly emotionally intelligent. I mean, there are times where whether you intend to or not, or whether you're aware of it or not, you've been the FD, you know, and as long as somebody else perceives you as that way, you were the FD, right? Yep. But it's all about the exercise in recognizing when something is seizing conscious control 
that something subconscious is hijacking who you've chosen you want to be, right? So if you've chosen you don't want to be that FD, what would a response look like to employ an employee that, you know, you caught napping at their desk, right? Or doing something, right? Whatever that is. So instead of responding with anger, to pause and say, okay, I'm not going to respond with anger. I'm going to try to be productive and supportive of this person's growth. How now would I talk to them as opposed to being the dick? But that's an exercise. I mean, that's that takes practice. And by the way, I think you get better at it, but are you always perfect at it? No, we all we're emotional beings and we yeah. just get hijacked. So, and by the way, we talk about being more human in the workplace. I sort of don't buy into that because to be human is to be like this emotional creature who is occasionally run off the rails. You want to be humane, but but human means. I'm just sort of naturally the FD once in a while. We want more humanity than being human because the humans, we're imperfect creatures. We actually are trying to seize control of our natural impulses to be jerks sometimes. That's an interesting point. But I love that distinction because it's normalizing our our humanness that, yep, guess what? We're all going to get emotionally hijacked. We're all going to get triggered. Like this is part of the human condition. And I think then it is creating workplaces where we hopefully are equipping people to recognize that when it happens, to give each other a little grace, to have the tools to be able to, you know, not, there's a difference between showing up as, oh, I'm emotionally hijacked. I didn't handle that well. I can go back and clean up my mess versus like, I went off on such a tirade rant that now like, it's impossible. Like it's psychologically unsafe. People can't stand to be around me. The damage is done beyond repair. You know, I mean, I think there's a spectrum of, oh, my humanity got the best of me and I got some crap I got to clean up and own and fix versus I like am completely lacking in emotional intelligence and unwilling to look in the mirror and unwilling to take responsibility. And those are the people that absolutely are toxic in the workplace. Right. And there's a lot of them. And, And a little bit of emotional intelligence actually goes quite a long way. Right. People can say, oh, Maybe that's not them because I've seen them be different and make give you the benefit of the doubt. But, you know, we're, <clears throat> it's funny. On LinkedIn, somebody had posted a thing about why people are fleeing the workplace. They're attributing a lot of this fleeing of the workplace because people had the experience of not being face to face with bosses who they dislike on a daily basis. And now sort of being forced to go back to the office and now facing that that icky boss, they're thinking, life is too short. I am just not doing that anymore. So it's funny. I actually made a comment and and a repost of that article saying how maybe COVID is this wake-up call to organizations that say, look, we, we can't just pay lip service to this idea about having better, more emotional, intelligent, you know, quality leaders. We actually have to do it or yep. people are gonna or people are gonna continue to leave. One of the things that you wrote in here, talk about, you know, stuff that confirms what we think, but you talked about that the difference between, you know, affected people is, isn't about gender or anything. It's about courage of people who have empathy and, and whatever. And obviously, you know, I'm a, as a facilitator of Brene Brown's dare to lead work, I'm a huge proponent of courage building skills. 
in the workplace. And one of the things I love is you talk about how we view this stuff as soft skills, you know, like all the emotional intelligence stuff and the communication self-awareness is still being labeled as soft skills. Although I've seen some people advocate that it needs to be called essential skills, not soft skills. And you talk in here, you say that you should call them power skills, which I love that. So tell me why we need to think about those things as power skills rather than soft skills. Well, first of all, the more importance we recognize them for and we and, and the terms we use to ascribe to those terms and skills, I think we just need to get that message across that, hey, these aren't just nice to have. Yeah. These are really important all throughout the organization, including the very top. The message is lost on sometimes boards of directors looking for a CEO. I mean, I just can't even imagine board of directors of a large corporation saying, you know, we need somebody with really good soft skills, right? And they might not even talk about these power skills. They're not looking for screening for empathy and humility and courage and warmth. They're looking for power and decisiveness, you know, which ultimately creates divisiveness. And it's a sort of a self-propagating thing that we have. Sometimes, you know, the, the biggest roadblock is with the boards of directors. Who yeah. They themselves are look are stuck in this old paradigmatic thinking that the CEO just has to be really smart and decisive and speak with an authoritative tone and, you know, have that executive presence. Yeah, except that, especially if you think about, oh, that person's decisive, but the basis of their decisiveness is completely numbers focused. And they forget that you don't meet the numbers and the results of the organization without the people. And so if you are decisive from a standpoint of processes or financial decisions or whatever it might be, and it's at the expense of what's going to actually allow your people to thrive, be connected, be effective, serve your purpose, then who cares how decisive you are? Right. Well, and that speaks to, by the way, being super outcomes focused as opposed to behavioral focused. Yep. If you believe that you know what behaviors are necessary in order to give you the outcomes that you want, manage to those. But yep. once you're looking just at numbers and outcomes metrics, it all goes away. You know, it creates too much competition in your sales force because they're mm -hmm. just looking for numbers. Are they doing the right thing in engaging the external stakeholders that are the customers in an appropriate way where relationships are super sticky, right? And they're really authentic and there's a lot of loyalty. Yeah. No, it can become very transactional and you're only as strong as your latest transaction. I hear this a lot, even more so lately is when, you know, COVID first started, it was just for some people, it was like, figure this out and keep the doors open. And oh my gosh, if we've never had a remote workforce and we have to be remote or if we have to go in, how do we keep our people safe? And everything was just kind of focused on like changing how we functionally show up and do work, whatever that means. And then as this is prolonged, like you talk about people like not wanting to go back or people leaving the workforce or people having a wake up call about what matters in life. And am I going to do this anymore? Am I going to not do that? I think it's hugely relevant because what I've seen is that people are starting to pause a little bit more and go, what am I willing to put up with? What am I not willing to put up with? And what, what's been happening now is with some industries now actually having a labor shortage, right? And trying to find people because people are saying, well, screw this. What's, yeah. what's, what is interesting to me is that I think a lot of the businesses that have not been behaviorally focused. So they haven't operationalized their core values. They don't have actual standards that they hold themselves accountable to. And they say, oh, well, you know what? 
that salesperson might be an FD, but they're a highest producing person or that fill in the blank, that surgeon, that lawyer, that mechanic, that whoever it is, they're really technically good at what they do and they're a high producer. Maybe they bring in a lot of money, but at what cost? And so they've been ignoring the behaviors and the collateral damage because well, you know what, that's a really hard role to fill. Or, you know, people aren't going into that trade anymore or aren't going into that industry anymore. And so we ignore people who are showing up as an FD thinking that it's fine. And what it does is then you lose other good people that are like, you're not going to, you're going to put up with this or, you know what, accountability doesn't apply across the board. Screw you, I'm out. And so I think that the unwillingness to deal with the FDs in the workplace, the unwillingness to have those difficult conversations, the unwillingness to really look at, you know, emotional intelligence and self-awareness and communication and all of that as power skills or essential skills rather than a nice, nice to have soft skill. I think right. people are going to be in trouble. So one of the things that you talk about in the book that we all need to do is to stop taking ourselves so seriously and lighten up a little bit. You have a great section about talking about the ego and how much the ego gets in our way of actually being trustworthy. And it's kind of a deal breaker. And when our ego is running the show, everything's a big deal, right? We can't laugh at ourselves. We think a screw up is the end of the world type of thing. So can you share some of your rules or some of your tips for people to just lighten up? Well, I don't have the book in front of me and I, and I keep working on that list, you know? So every time I present those, I'm always adding new things. Um, although one that has endured the test of time was never, ever, ever go into a meeting with a full bladder, right? I know it seems mundane, but just think about that. Can you listen? Can you concentrate? No. Also, as you know, I like to wear color. So it's like enough with the khakis. We might as well just make khaki like illegal for a while. <laughs> not fun, right? It's not entertaining. Shows zero character. There's a, all kinds of rules for lightening up. For me, it's you know, simple carbohydrates at every turn. I just bought an ice cream maker, right? So it's also just really good to know your own foibles and be out there with them and be public with them. It tends to be very endearing. People then feel more comfortable about themselves being imperfect and all that. But the one most important thing though, is I think to know that everybody around you is really afraid. It's not just you, everyone's afraid. And sometimes someone's going to come across as that FD to maybe even have a little compassion to know that, hey, that probably came from a place of fear. Yeah. You know, so that kind of helps you tolerate. It's not always personal. It might yeah. not ever be personal. But where you draw the line is never, ever, 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 ever work for somebody who you're pretty sure is a sociopath or a psychopath. Right. Because they just don't have the lens with which to look at things as being you know, with a, with a conscience. They don't really don't feel right and wrong. They have no problem using you for their own means. And that's a recipe for absolute disaster. So we have one more set of questions and this is rapid fire. Fill in the blank. Living authentically is? Showing up with hairs out of place. When the world is presenting an opening, but you don't feel like showing up as a leader, what do you do? I'm probably going to eat pizza or ice cream. Just there you go. Av avoidance. You hey. know, re rethink and recalibrate. What's something people would be surprised to know about you? Oh. 
that I grow pretty good tomatoes. If money and reality were no object, what car would you want to drive? What country would you want to visit? What cuisine would you want to eat? And it does not have to be related to the country. And what celebrity living or dead would you want to eat that cuisine with? Ooh, you know, there's nothing like a Ferrari to get my blood boiling. The look and sound of a Ferrari, I am all over it. I, I love Canada. I love Canadians. Maybe it's just the Canadians. They're just down to earth. All right, you're going to go to Canada in your Ferrari. What cuisine are you going to eat? I hope they have good Chinese food there. Okay, and then what celebrity living or dead are you going to eat your Chinese food with? Mel Blanc, who did all the voices, you know, Elmer Fudd, Bugs Bunny. I would just love to sit around and have a conversation with all those cartoon characters coming out of that guy's head. What's something you can't live without? The cinnamon buns at Isles Bun and Coffee. Take that away, Rosie, and I have to really seriously consider, you know, my future. Something in your ordinary daily life that makes your heart happy. Oh, crossword puzzles. And last but not least, what are you grateful for right now? Oh, that's actually a very long list. I am grateful for the abundance that's still out there for us in terms of resources, in terms of food and clean water and good people. You know, it's so easy to look at the stuff that causes us pain, but all you need to do is focus on the stuff that's that's resonant with your value system. And there's so much goodness out there. And, and friends, you know, it's the people that I connect with. It is what I live for. Thank you so much for listening to Show Up as a Leader. If you haven't yet subscribed, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. I'm Rosie Ward, and you can find me online at drrosieward.com where you'll be able to sign up for my newsletter, check out the books I'm reading, and hear from the people I'm talking to. You can also get more information on what I'm up to professionally, including my coaching and speaking services. You can also find me on LinkedIn at rward, Facebook and Instagram at drrosieward, or email me at rosie at drrosieward.com. And I just want to remind you to remember that you have the choice every day to show up as a leader. So choose courage over comfort, embrace your humanity, and never, ever dull your sparkle. Take care, everyone.